are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Will Store. Will is an award-winning journalist, and he is the author of the novel The Hunger and the Howling of Killian Lone, and of five, or is it six, nonfiction works. Um, most recently, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed, uh, which I actually talked to Will about in a previous episode of this podcast. Will is also a ghostwriter, and he runs fiction writing workshops in London. And he's now written a book on fiction writing called The Science of Storytelling. And that's what I have invited him on to talk about today. This is the first time I've had a repeat guest on this podcast, uh, though perhaps not the last, because uh, Will has shown us all up by writing a second book within the time of my doing this podcast. <laughs> How is that even possible? Well, it's sort of cheating, really. It's based, you know, because it is based on two previous books. So, well, we won't we won't tell anyone. That okay. will be our little. Well, it's our secret. Okay, even though we do, I do admit it in the introduction, but <laughs> yeah, we can just gloss over that. Yeah, we'll gloss over that. Well, you know, I realized when I was in academe very quickly that some of the most productive scholars who I was very intimidated by because of the gargantuan quality of their oeuvre do a, a, a ton of self-cannibalization. <laughs> That's the secret, yeah. 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 All Roy Porter's books are basically one book. Yeah. Um, and there are about 20 of them. Yeah. So, yeah. It's auto cannibalization is fine by me. And I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires as usual. And Will is coming to us from Kent, just outside London. Hello, Will. Welcome. Hi, Anna. Thanks for that introduction. Let me just say how much I absolutely love the book. And Thank you. I, I didn't uh, read it, I listened to it as an audiobook on Audible. I highly recommend that you do that, unless you're going to have to interview and podcast with the author because listening to it in an audiobook makes it hard to locate quotations afterwards. <laughs> um, but it is, you are such an amazing um, reader. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. And it's the first audiobook I've done. And I just thought, because before I, I always think, well, you leave it to the pros, leave it to the voice actors. But with this one, because I teach it anyway. Th th this book is based on the writing courses that I give in London, which are in turn based on the kind of scientific research I did for my for two of the previous um, science books, The Selfie and The Heretics. And both, both of those books um, are just based on this one central idea, which is that the brain is a storyteller. And um, uh, uh, The Heretics... It, it looks at is an examination of how that, that those ideas end end up leading us into these kind of crazy areas of belief where like really smart people end up believing these really crazy things because because of that and then selfie is it, it, um, is sort of the other half of that story it's, it, it, it's telling us about how culture 
um, really, to, it's, it's a book about how culture impacts that story of self that we tell. And, um, and, and so, the, 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 as a writer, I became really curious about this idea that if the, if, the, you know, if, the, if the brain is a storyteller, maybe I can start interrogating some brain stuff to try and work out how to make myself a better writer, but a storyteller. And then that became a course, which became a book. So, 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 so the kind of the, the scientific core of the heretics and selfie are, are, are both sort of very much there and present in the science of storytelling, but, but, but it, uh, with extra, lots of extra stuff in there, but, but, but very much purposed, you know, repurposed for that very kind of close aim, which is to help us to understand stories and tell better stories. You have this central thesis, which is about that the place to begin when writing a story is with with a protagonist who begins broken and with a fatal flaw. Do you want to, could you explain that to to my listeners, yeah, well, there's all kinds of ways to um to, to begin a story, and I, I think the, the most kind of fundamental one is it, the, 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 it's very very common to begin a story with a moment of kind of unexpected change because all, all of our perception is based on um, uh, identifying moments of unexpected change. You know, perception um, is about Sort of change detection, change prediction, um, but but when you get kind of deeper into story and 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 so so the, so the book really is a is, is is a combination of kind of neuroscience, social psychology, and evolutionary psychology. And the evolutionary psychology side of it is really interesting. Um, you know, it's looking at this idea of the that the human is this domesticated, a self-domesticated species. We've we've domesticated ourselves, and um, uh, so 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 roughly the idea is that roughly over the last sort of thousand generations. Um, especially since we've been settled and we, we stopped being hunter-gatherers, our kind of character as, uh, as a species has changed because back when we were kind of roaming around, we were, we were, we, we, obviously um, kind of um, social. Uh, we, we've always been, you know, we're a very highly social ape, and, that, and, that, and it's been that way for, a, for an extremely long time. But but kind of that, that kind of physical dominance was and 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 kind of aggressive dominance was much more uh, as much more important uh, thing for our survival kind of pre-settlement. But then when we settled down, that, that those kind of physical aggressive ways of controlling the world became less important. And, and actually the, 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 the kind of people, the kind of humans that really thrived in the world were the ones that were much better at manipulating people, uh, manipulating the minds of the other people around them. And so, so, so that's the idea that we became, we kind of domesticated ourselves, that, that we started selecting for um, psychological kind of canniness um, um, mm. uh, um, more. And, and, and so, so, so from that comes this idea that we're this um uh i, I kind of we, we, we humans have this you know every animal kind of it, it kind of samples that kind of narrow band of reality that's, that's essential for their survival so you know dogs live in a world of smell moles live in a world of touch uh, fish live you know um uh, the knife fish lives in a world of electricity but the human realm is very much that of other minds that that that, that that's the world in which we that that's our kind of survival um environment and and the better we the better we are at manipulating and controlling the minds around around us the better able we are to get those darwinian goals of survival and um reproduction that's just what the human animal is like and so 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 i I, you know when i'm walking my dogs twice a day and and i see them sniffing at everything i'm thinking you think why 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 are they sniffing at everything what's so interesting about the sniffing but of course dogs live in the world of smell so smell is infinitely interesting to dogs and that's and and i kind of often think about us you know and humans with their, their noses in books and their 
kind of eyes on YouTube or Netflix is quite similar in a way to um, dogs, uh, dogs smelling everything is, is that we are relentlessly interested in other people's minds. We are relentlessly interested in other people's kind of behavior. And we're we're relentlessly interested in the causes and effects of why people do what they do. Why did that person do that weird thing? And so often story begins with, 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 with 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 a character that's kind of flawed or broken in a certain way. That, that reacts to that moment of change and then often react in a way that's kind of unexpected that, you know, and, and that's what kind of triggers that sense of curiosity in us. What, what, what's all that about? Why did that, why did that character do that? Like at the beginning of King Lear, for example, when King Lear is um, dividing his kingdom amongst his three daughters, but he decides rather than divide it equally, he's going to give his daughters a love test and whoever does best in the love test gets the most kingdom. That's a weird thing to do. Um, but, it, but, 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 but that's, that's the beginning of that story or the beginning of Lawrence of Arabia or towards the beginning of Lawrence of Arabia when he first arrives in the war zone and he's being led through the desert. Um, and, and his guide is killed, uh, because they, he drunk from somebody else's well and rather, and, and then the murderer, the killer, kind of approaches and rather than kind of run away or beg for his life you know T. Lawrence grandiosely berates the killer um, so, so it's a kind of a weird uh, it's a weird reaction and that kind of triggers our triggers our curiosity like, what is it with this guy and of course that's the story that Lawrence of Arabia and stories like it relentlessly ask is what is it with this individual what's what, what, what's driving them mm, mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, all all of the at a at a much more basic level. All of the Balzac novels, for example, just begin with this handsome stranger riding into town on a horse or <laughs> in a coach into the small provincial town. You know, every single one of them begins. Really, like I'm that. not familiar with Balzac. <laughs> is, that, is that right? Do they all begin with that? Do they? Yes, it's into this kind of seemingly quiet and not exactly idyllic, but unchanging landscape comes uh, yes. an element of change oh, in the form of the stranger. Oh, um, as, as also in Emma, which you do a wonderful analysis, a little bit of reading of in the book, um, Jane Austen's Emma, which begins, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, seemed to unite some of the best, best blessings of existence. And that word "seemed" does so much work there. In that <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. So, so, so often you see, in it's a really, really good writers. Uh, you, you, when, when we talk about these moments of change, they have them packed into the very first sentences, and that's when you know you're in that you're in safe hands. Often, it, when, when your first sentence is packed full of change, but also often first sentences are packed full of the threat of change too. Like when we threaten that change is on the way, that's another way of thinking about suspense, and that, and that's a quite a suspenseful opening sentence. This is a similar opening sentence to Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter book, which is a description of these kind of very smug. Um, um, family, the Dursleys, the, the you know, and so, so it's going. We we know as story experienced people that in this kind of very very unchanging, quite self satisfied world that we're being presented with, that that change is certainly on the way. Mm. And I think you quite astutely said that as soon as we hear she is handsome, clever, and rich, we hate her. Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. Well, that's another thing that I thought was really interesting from from from, from the evolutionary um, psychology side of things, and that's this idea of of status. Uh, and I just find it really interesting um, um, in the, in the heretics. I, 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 I talk about this idea of the hero maker. The brain is this hero maker, and 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 I started kind of trying to work out 
if we've got a healthy brain, what's the illusion? What's the story that it's spinning from us? What's the kind of default human story? And, and in the book, I talk about this kind of David and Goliath idea that we always feel that we're David versus, versus Goliath. We always, we, we, we know, we tend, to, the social psychology side of things shows us that we tend to be um, overly optimistic for our own, when we think about our own future. So we're kind of propelled into this kind of future narrative. Um, we, there's all the well-known self-serving above average biases, you know, 94% of university professors believe they're above average you know, and things like this. Um, and one of them I didn't really catch in The Heretics was, the, was this idea of status. And it's this really weird thing where um, no matter, no matter how much status that we actually have in the in life, we always tend to feel <laughs> that we are um, relatively undeserving of uh, of our of our lot. Like no, 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 sorry, not relative. No, that we deserve more. So, so we always feel that we deserve more status, and we always when we don't like kind of high status people. Um, it's one of these kind of cross. Um, it's one, we, we resent high status people, and, and no matter. I, I, the, the people on the left get a lot of criticism for, res- for, 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 for that kind of resentment. But I, but I, th- I don't think it's a politically um, mediated thing. I think everybody resents high status people. So you know, like, like no matter where you, where you sit on the spectrum, we all tend to feel completely justified in being unbelievably beastly to like politicians, <laughs> to pop stars, mm. to CEOs, but, you know, to, because they've got so anybody that's higher status than us, we, we completely dehumanise them. There, there was a, I don't know if you saw the documentary Amy, a fantastic documentary Amy, no. um, about Amy Winehouse. <laughs> really brilliant storytelling in that. And there was a really chilling bit, bit in that documentary that really made, kind of jolted me. Um, and um, in the UK, there's a very popular chat show host called Graham Norton and Graham Norton's this lovely cuddly guy. Everybody loves Graham Norton, and a bit like in the states at the beginning of his um, uh, chat shows, he has this kind of piece to camera. It's lots of jokes about pieces to camera, and he does a lot of of, of making fun of celebrities. It's just sort of teasing the, the you know the, the celeb gossip of the day, and and there's a bit in there we're, we're being kind of dragged by the storytellers through Amy Winehouse's terrible, awful decline into heroin addiction and it, it, jarringly in the middle of there this is his graham norton skit um just just teasing her and mocking her for this and and when it's when, when you put it in that context it's just really shocking because <laughs> you think god that i would have been laughing along with that and i probably and i was uh, um back in the day but but, but because amy one is this high status wealthy number one celebrity nobody cares yeah and so, 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 so it's a very interesting kind of quality of the human condition i think and it's part of that hero maker thing that we all that no matter how much status we have in the world we always feel like we deserve more uh, i'll give the example in there of, of prince charles apparently being um jealous of a billionaire friend of his who's who only has because because prince charles has only got nine gardeners and his friend has got 15 and, he, and apparently he apparently finds this <laughs> to be a completely objectionable uh, situation for prince charles to be in and it's, 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 i just thought it was a really interesting thing and and, and that's one of those things in storytelling that, that, that of course in archetypal storytelling, especially heroes tend to start off um, uh, have it in a state of low status, and we and we relate to that. You know, they, they, they tend to be they're often low status people who deserve to have more status, unfairly looked over or un, uh, sorry, unfairly overlooked, and and of course the story often tells of them gaining in status and their heroic, glorious ending is them like like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars suddenly finally getting the status which has been you know always kind of latent within them. And we cheer because because we feel like that's us. That's our future. That's what we. That's that. That's going to happen to us. Right. So, yeah, I think it's, Harry it's, it's, Potter. It's, 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 exactly. Snow, yeah. All this. 
Exactly. So, so this kind of idea of status play in stories is so you know villains start off high and end up low, and protagonists start off low and end up high is the, is the general rule. But sometimes there's a, there's a, there's more of a U shape, uh, like like in a tragedy, like uh, Perfume by Patrick Susskind, that brilliant story where he, the, the, the the protagonist is is born an orphan, the old classic fairy tale story, and becomes this great perfumer, but, but ends up uh, uh, being kind of killed, and because at the end, because he he uses his powers for evil. I think Susskind's story is a good example of a story that's very gripping, but in which I feel no empathy at all with that with the narrator. Um, mm. And there's a very similar thing that goes on, and it's an unusual way of telling a story. There's a similar thing that goes on with Hogg's uh, novel, uh, The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. I don't know if you've read that novel. I've never heard of it. Um, ah, um, so in that that novel, the protagonist is just such a complete sociopath. I mean, he's not even a sociopath because that implies a, a mental illness and we could empathize with someone who's ill. He just is truly evil. Wow. And it's an utterly fascinating um, novel. But I think we don't have, at least I don't have any vestige of sympathy with this, with the narrator. It's more a kind of fascination about how bad people can be um, yeah, and I, just I, I, I think, I think, you can think to but uh, <laughs> yeah I, I think that's right I think it does tap into that um that idea that we are just endlessly fascinated in the causes and effects of human behavior I mean ca ca cause and effect is, is just a fundamental of how we understand humans under understand the world and, and, and as babies we begin building our understanding of, of the world it's specifically in that idea of cause and effect how does one thing lead to another and what are the effects going to be? And, we, and that's something that's different between us and the, the other apes. So this is very interesting. One of the, one of the studies they've done where they, where they, where they give chimpanzees and human, human um, um, kind of pre-verbal uh, babies, children, um, the, the, these blocks that are, have a kind of lead weight off center in the block and, and so they don't stand up. And, and, and the chimpanzees just keep trying to get the block to stand up. But most of the children, even though they're pre-verbal, they start examining the block and trying to work out why is this not so that, so that cause and effect, the whys of why things happen in the world is a, is a very, very human thing. And because we are, as I said before, because we are these creatures that live in this psychological realm, the causes of an, an, an effects of human behavior, as I say, it's just endlessly fascinating. And I do think that's one of the things about anti-heroes. It's we, we're really interested in, like, I love true crime stuff. Like, I, you know, mm. reading, reading books about, like, Fred West and Rose West. I don't feel any empathy with Fred West or Rose West. But, <laughs> but, 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 but how on earth? Like, what, what led them to that? Um, what led them to, 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 to committing those crimes? I mean, it's, it's just en it is endlessly fascinating because human behavior is endlessly fascinating. I was just reading a book recently where a psychologist pointed out that um, – only a subset of humans are interested in the causes and effects of how planets work, for example. But pretty much everybody is interested in in the, in the behavior of their neighbors. The, you know what's going on over the fence. It just seems to be this this this, this fundamental um, in, in kind of bottomless interest that we have, and that and, and that's part of the a huge part of the joy of stories. 
I think you had a lovely um, quotation, which I now cannot find, but um, it was about antiheroes. And you said that when we are, I think it was in the context of, you do this quite long analysis of um, Nabokov's Lolito in the yeah, book, yeah. Lolita, which is um, uh, one of my favorite of the critical, of the literary readings that you perform. And you show why it is that we are able to empathize and identify so much with Humbert Humbert, despite his being, you know, a pedophile. <laughs> yeah. Which you would think would be, of all people, the least, the person one could least empathize with. Well, these days, then probably less so, but yeah, certainly these yeah, days. And these we're days, still, yes. still selling books, yeah. Yes. And you said that the thing about anti-heroes is just paraphrasing now, that our hero-making brain, which maybe we'll come back to, um, it's tiring to keep, we want to keep pretending that we are virtuous and heroic, but in some part of ourselves, we know that that's not the case. And it's a little tiring to keep up this constant pretense towards ourselves. And so empathizing with the anti-hero is a way of relaxing those defenses. And there's something quite Liberating. Yeah, that was one of these. That's one of those moments when you're writing, when you, 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 you like, I, I, I put a lot of thought into the, the analysis of, of Lolita and Humbert Humbert because when I was doing my courses and I was talking about the hero maker, how we empathise with low status people and selfless people, the, the question would always come up: What about anti-heroes? What about anti-heroes? So I thought I, I, you know, and I would kind of fudge it a little bit, going, "Well, you know." Um, so I thought I'm going to look into this properly, and and and, and so I did, as you, as you say, quite a long analysis of uh, and actually I, I th what's going on very often in stories about anti-heroes is 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 there's very a, a lot of very, very subtle stuff that's almost subconsciously nudging us into. Um, empathizing with them for a, a big one being that that they're often a, a bad person but surrounded by worse people that's and that's true of the sopranos and that's true of certainly humber humber with quilty the the actual horrible um pornographer that he that he goes up against um and then uh, so i wrote all that out with it but i had this kind of niggle <laughs> i'm trying to finish writing that passage i was thinking i just don't think of that's the whole story because it's just undeniably true and, and, and a kind of uncomfortable fact that when we're reading stories about these evil characters, it's thrilling. Like it's thrilling to read American Psycho. And, 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 and I just thought that's, that's got to be a part of it, that, that, that even if it's uncomfortable to admit that actually, but, as, you, as you say, part of the hero-making brain is, it, so, 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 so since I wrote The Heretics, social psychologists are, are coming to this, I've, I've read quite, quite a few times that, there's this idea now that, that that one of the most powerful biases that we have, these delusions that we have, is is the one about morality. That that that, that, we, that we have to believe we are moral people. So we, so we come upon our beliefs um, about the world, um, and then have to decide why those beliefs are moral beliefs. So, so, so this idea that we are moral people is such a powerful thing, and and and, you could, and, and that that completely makes sense. Like if you woke up tomorrow morning and, and and decided that you were actually a horrible, nasty person, it's just it's a description of mental illness. It's, it's, it's a, it must be a horrible thing to to be. And in story, the only really people who are like that in real life, sorry, are kind of sociopaths and psychopaths. And not not many of us, and they're not especially interesting people to read stories about because they they then their causes and effects aren't particularly interesting. So if that's true, then a lot of our unconscious cognitive effort every day is spent convincing ourselves that what we did is actually a good thing and, and, and we actually behaved well. And when you think about 
every day, you, you, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, you're going through these periods of cognitive dissonance. I did this thing or I felt this thing or I saw this thing on Twitter and I felt or thought or behaved this way. And, 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 you, and you have to go through this process in your head of convincing yourself Oh, yeah, I was right because of this and they're wrong because of that. Like it's a lot of effort. And and so perhaps that's what it is. I thought perhaps that's part of the joy, the secret joy of reading about antiheroes is it frees us to be, it frees us to, play, to, 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 to be evil and to kind of actually not have to um, go to that effort of uh, convincing ourselves that we are good. Mm. Yeah. I want to return to your ideas about how to begin a story, different routes into a story. Mm. So you give three, milieu, what if, an argument. And you say that milieu, or what people might call concept, mm. that writers often feel as though the most important thing is to, is the milieu, the setting. And they feel that they already have a story because they have a situation there. Um, yeah. And I have, I, I have this personally all the time. <laughs> I think the most difficult thing is creating a plot, a narrative that hangs together. And it's very easy to write lush descriptions and it's very easy to yeah. come up with settings. Um, I began writing a novel, which I abandoned, and restarted several times and keep abandoning because I love the milieu of it. Yeah. I will say what it is now. And if anybody wants to actually take this and run with it, they can. <laughs> because frankly, I, I imagine a future time in which uh, it's set in a, in a time in which people have had found a way to eliminate, completely eliminate homosexuality uh, in our species. And they have this is the backstory and they have decided to bring it back. And I don't go into details, obviously, but through a small neurological operation that you can have during puberty, you can create people who are gay and they have a, um, people are paid to undergo this operation and then live in a ghetto, which is a re kind of reconstruction of the Castro, oh. where straight people can go and as tourists and watch them. And it's kind of for cultural enrichment to the society. It's a it's wow. an alternative future dystopia. And I love the idea and I keep coming up with little scenes, but there's no story. So the bit that you've just mentioned in the book where I mentioned those three different thing, ways into story, that those are the ways in that I, I often get in my classes that are that end up being a little bit of a problem initially because people come and they think, as you say, because you've got a milieu or because there's a what if, what if, you know, uh, X, Y, and yes. Z. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Or, or, or in these days of uh, culture wars, very often it's an argument. Oh, I want to write a story about how awful Trump is or whatever. So, okay, fine. Okay. Or the U S healthcare system. Fine. But, 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 but the problem is, as, as you say, those aren't, those are settings for stories or those are kind of ideas around which you might orient a story, but they're not actual stories. And to, and to actually get a really good story, you, um, you need a um, character. You, you need mm -hmm. an interesting mm -hmm. character to, to go on a journey to to, to exist in, and I, and I think my kind of analysis is that the the, the reason, especially because we're living in a kind of an, an industrial revolution of storytelling with in in this kind of Netflix age, which is wonderful. But 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 what I think what you're seeing is is um, uh, storytellers very often. Um, uh, 
relying too much on that kind of plot formula. They, they, they rely too much on that Joseph Campbell monomyth or w- whichever book they've bought um, that tells them a kind of a recipe for a story. So these are the things that need to happen in this particular order. Uh, and you can understand how we've ended up in this situation because before we, we knew all this stuff about how the mind works, that was the only way of analyzing story and theorizing about stories. You get all the stories that you like and put them together and you compare them, you see what they've got in common and you go, well, what they've got in common is this. And there's not really any way to describe that without listing a sequence of events well first this happens and then this happens and then this happens so what we've now got is this kind of recipe culture in storytelling well is it a rags to riches is it a hero's journey da, 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 da. and and as i say in the book the problem with following recipes is that you end up with the same bloody cake all the time and, and i think the, the the problem is is, is that we it's not that we've forgotten about character. It's just that we don't. We, we, the emphasis has gone too much on that formula, and, and, and we've moved away from thinking about or character. I mean, you could argue that, we, that lots of writers were never thinking properly about character in the first place. But 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 that's really what storytelling is about. It's about people. It's about people learning or not learning. It's about the causes and effects of human behaviour. The reason that we scream or shout and ram our heads into the pillow isn't because a thing happened it's because a thing happened to a certain specific person that we care about mm, um mm. Or, or that we hate you, you know hate is a kind mm. of care that we that we mm. that we have an emotional relationship with and so my argument really that's running through the book is that, that is that if you want to write great stories you, you need to understand how people work and you and specifically you need to understand how and how people are broken because it's, it, it's, you know, who we are is how we're broken, really. That's how we, def- that, 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 it, it, that it's, it's like, you know, it's that, and, and so um, really the argument, the, the book is, 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 is an argument to kind of try and move away from these kind of formulas, these recipes and get back into the, to the, prof- to, to the profundity of story, which is, which is, uh, and that, that's really what story, what, 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 what literature and psychology and neuroscience have in common. That, that it's they're they're both different ways of asking about human behaviour. They're both different ways of interrogating what is it to be a person, what does it mean, what are the things we get wrong, and how do we fix them. So well, I, I I want to get back to the um, you you say so. I'm going to just summarise a little bit of some of the arguments that happen in the book. So you talk about, you start with a broken protagonist. I think you say at some point, our protagonists need to start off broken. Yeah. And the protagonist is, as you describe it, this is obviously just one way of entering, but Mm. I think it's a very strong and and powerful description of an entry point. Uh, You say that the protagonist should be in the grip of a delusion, a wrong belief about the world, which you call the sacred flaw. And that belief came about because of something that happened to that protagonist at an early stage. Well, we have to be careful here because this is where the story departs from the reality. Because of course... As you as as you obviously know, much of who we are is genetic, but we don't we don't tell stories about genetics <laughs> because mm, that's, just, mm. that's you know it's not a, you could imagine telling a story about somebody being a product of their genes, but it wouldn't be a particularly interesting or satisfying story. And also, it's a massive mm. simplification. You know, story is a confabulation. It's a it's a theory about why people do what they do. And and so, you, when the, the, in the section of the book you're talking about, that's the appendix of it. Or I'm actually talking about, I think where I'm talking about how to, yeah, how to tell a story, how to construct a story. Uh, but, 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 but so this idea 
this idea that we're, that, that we're specifically broken because of a specific thing, event that happened to us in isolation is usually not true in real life, but it's a useful way of building a story because, yes, it, because yes. it enables you to precisely understand who your character is. But it, it's a massive simplification. Of, yes, of, of course. Um, so there's a kind of origin damage. Yes. Which, is, which has led to this false belief. And then what, what the story does is something comes about that challenges that false belief about the world. And you actually mm. um, have a, a, a little small section where you tell your own life as if you were a protagonist, a broken <laughs> protagonist at the beginning of a novel. Um, mm. I'm going to read that tiny, tiny little section. Mm. It's um, <clears throat> a tiny section of that. I feel myself becoming odder. This really made me laugh when I was reading it. <laughs> I, I feel myself becoming odder. I sense it in the wary eyes of the postman and people I meet when out walking. I worry about my wife and I getting old, childless and isolated. But what to do? My neural neuro models have been organizing themselves in this direction for decades. In order to break them apart and change the flawed core belief they're founded upon, something properly dramatic would have to happen. So there you are, you have this kind of flawed theory that in order to be in control of your life, you need to be isolated out there in the Kent countryside with your wife and your dogs. Yeah. And this is clearly leading you in a particular direction, which is safe, but somehow impoverished from a story point of view. Main, your real life doesn't seem very impoverished, but I'm just being a storyteller for a moment. Mm. So clearly I need to, first of all, kill the wife. I'm so sorry to your <laughs> wife, but it's necessary for the plot. <laughs> um, and then I need you to, to be forced out of this isolation um, yeah. So that you have to change your your view, your incredibly cynical <laughs> view. <laughs> I think you said your core belief is that people are dangerous. <laughs> yeah, um, which is of course true, but uh, but also not the whole truth. So there's a beginning of a story there. Yeah, that's that's it. And 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 so 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 the, the reason I mean, the, I, 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 one of the things I was I wasn't sure if it was the right decision, but was was to whether to keep because the appendix is very much this is just a bit for writers. Um, but there's a quite an important idea in there, and that's an idea which which, which I first heard from Jonathan Haidt, which is the idea of. Um, when I was interviewing him for my book, The Heretics, he said, um, "If you want to, because it's about irrational ideas, and he said to me, if you want to find irrationality, look for the things that." people hold to be sacred and there there you're going to find rampant irrationality so of course anybody that's been following you or lots of other people on you know around you on twitter will be aware of some of God these help them yeah exactly these sacred ideas uh, a, a, a very common one is um that uh gender is a um, is a social construct which is which is which is an idea that lots of people around me and in my milieu um hold sacred at the moment which is you know, just, there you go. But it's, but it's an idea that they hold sacred, so, mm. so they will passionately um, defend it. They will, um, they they will um, uh, uh, attack you for challenging it, and they will see evidence for their belief everywhere. And because that, that's what we do, that's 
confirmation mm-hmm. bias and and, yeah. and and so so, so, so uh, and that's that it's, it's that sacred belief that is often tested in in great stories so so the beginning mm-hmm. of a story will be introduced to a character that is in grip is that's in the grip of this sacred belief and the interesting thing about these sacred beliefs is that they've often um been the source of um, lots of success for the for, for the character. So, so, so one of these ideas. That, so, in, in the UK, obviously, we've been going through this awful Brexit failed Brexit process that's so far failed, and we've just seen the we've we've just seen the, the British Prime Minister Theresa May who's um, st- stand down, and in um in a news report about her recently, I, there, there was this lots of um, talk about. Why did she fail so abysmally at, at, at negotiating Brexit? And someone very close to her told this journalist, the problem with Theresa May is that she always feels that she's the only adult in every room that she walks mm, into. Mm, and I just, that's, mm. that's brilliant. That's a sacred flaw. That's this idea around which she has oriented her life. She, she, she believes that she's, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but just to say it is for the sake of the argument, that, that, she's, that, that, that she is always believes that she's the only adult in every room. And, and so, so this is a flawed belief. Obviously, she's not the, the only adult in every room, but she believes that. So, so that belief is going, to explain, is, is, going to, is going to help us explain why she fails to compromise, why she just doesn't listen to people, why she alienates both her enemies and her allies, why she won't bend, you know, why the negotiation was such a disaster. But it also explains the success. So, you, so let's just sort of rewind. Imagine Theresa May at 13 years old, that she's in the grip of this belief, or she, she's begun to be in the grip of this belief that she's the, always the only adult in every room she walks into. You know, what kind, of, what kind of life would that person pursue? Well, perhaps as a politician. You know, if you really believe that, you, you're going to sell that idea really well. And people are, going to, people are going, to, going, to, going to believe that you are the only adult. And, and so, so you, you could begin to see how that, that, that one belief takes it all the way up to prime minister. But that's not where our story starts. Our story starts at the Brexit process, because in the Brexit process, that's when this idea, this flawed belief really begins to be tested. Mm. And, and it falls to pieces. And, and, and this belief that was her greatest ally becomes her greatest foe, because she fails to listen, she, forget, she fails to bend, she fails to compromise, she patronises people, she talks down to, you know, all that stuff. And she ends up where, where we saw her last week, failed, broken, in tears, her ambitions lying around her feet. So it's a classic, tragic story. That's, and why I think that's such a great line, the adult being in the unedited room, is because mm. it's, it's a very specific and precise description of a belief that's that that, 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 that that she she will see evidence for it everywhere not 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 least in the fact that she's prime minister for god's sake but it's 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 a it's, it's a flawed belief you know during the brexit process Theresa may is going to be surrounded by adults unbelievably hard-working and talented and smart experts in, in policy and and and, and so on yeah, it's also about, I mean, fundamentally, it's about loss of control. This is why I killed your wife in our in, in my kind of fiction. Um, and also because the wife, I mean, when I was married, I, I was also much, much, you know, I indulged the introvert side of myself so much more. Because I, yeah, because I had Oliver. So I didn't mm. need to have, I didn't need anybody else to be there. Oh yeah. And so I I became more and more hermit like <laughs> because I was oh. just I had my husband, so I was home with my husband. Yeah, that's same as that's exactly the same for me actually. Um you're making me think, you know, if I yeah, I think you're right. I think it's if it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't be like this. It's her fault. 
It would, yeah. <laughs> there you go. You can have something you, you can blame her for. But also, so many. Somebody pointed out, I think, uh, to to um, Tony Tanner when I was the late Tony Tanner, who who was one of my teachers when I was studying literature at Cambridge. And um, I remember somebody said, isn't it interesting that in Jane Austen's novels, when I say somebody, it was some other critic, I I don't remember who, in Jane Austen's novels, uh, they all begin with a father who is in some way inadequate. Um, So in Persuasion, the father is this completely narcissistic, self-absorbed fop who has no interest in his children. Mm. In Mansfield Park, the father... Fanny's father is dead and the adoptive father, Sir Bertram, is absent. Mm. In Pride and Prejudice, the father is spends all his time in his library and leads, leaves the entire running of things to, um, to his wife with disastrous consequences. In Sense and Sensibility, the father is dead. Um, so in, in all of these stories, there is, there's no father character, but that, in fact, has nothing is not so specific to Jane Austen. It's in almost in 90% of the novels from that period, you see that the novel begins with the parents dying. And there are so many more orphans running around in literature than in real life. Because if your (laughs) parents are there to look after you, how can you get up to any mischief? Well, there's also the loss of control. You know, it's 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 that the 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 primary function of of a human of any brain is to is to control its environment in in order that it gets what it wants. So 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 any kind of loss of control. There's this beautiful line by Professor Roy Baumeister, who's one of my favourite psychologists, because he writes so so wonderfully, and and he he wrote that um, uh, what's the line I'm I'm looking for. Life is change that yearns for stability. Just mm. just a lovely, lovely line, and 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 that and and, and that's right. We, we we yearn for stability. We yearn for control. But life is constant change, and so what, and, and so that's why at the beginning of, of a story, it begins with change, and and even as, even if not immediately, that that change will connect. Will usually um, connect specifically with the flawed part of that person, with that flawed belief of that person. So if we were to do the, if we were to dramatize the Brexit process, the failed Brexit process to the eyes of Theresa May, that's why we would use that as the flaw because that, because that Brexit process, the beginning of the Brexit process connects specifically with that flawed belief around which she's organized her, her sense of self and her life, the, the external life, which is I am the only adult in any room walk, walk into. And it's the first time that I, that belief is, is actually challenged. And, um, so, 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 so what you see at the beginning of really great storytelling is, is this, is this, is this kind of perfect alchemical meeting of external event with, the interior psychology of the protagonist and and the external event, even if it's not immediately obvious, immediately obvious, it will strike right at the heart of what's wrong with that um, character, and the character will be sort of triggered and, and act out in, often in a, in, a, in a strange and unusual way. Mm. Like I was just reading, there's a, there's a very famous comic novel in Britain called "The Rise and Fall of Reginald Perrin," mm-hmm. and and, and it, was, it was made into a very <laughs> yeah yes. So 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 it's it's a bit like a, a, a 1970s version of American Beauty. It's a middle aged man who has a nervous breakdown essentially but 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 it's but it's based around his, his he builds to his um 
he fakes his own suicide and, and goes to off to kind of start a new life. Um, but the very first line in, in, the, in the novel um, relates to his, he, he, he finds himself surprisingly um, calling his mother-in-law a hippopotamus. And he's like, why did I call her a hippopotamus? What's that come from? Like, why did I call her a hippopotamus? And that's the very first sign of his nervous breakdown. That he, he finds himself calling his mother-in-law a hippopotamus. And, it, and it's, it's a glorious first sentence because, because it, we're right in there. We're right in there with his rebelling subconscious. We're, we're right in there with his, all his core ideas about the world beginning to kind of break apart. And, 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 and yes, yeah, so, so, so that's why I think, and again, that's one of the things, one of the problems that I see very, very commonly in the, people that come to the courses is that is that they have a great idea for a plot and they might have a great idea for a character but often they have this kind of rough outline and usually it's based on them and there's no real understanding that plot and character are inseparable plot comes out of character just like our our particular life comes out of who we are uh, the plot of a story and, and the events of a story should really come out of who the characters in that story are well it's that interaction it's the it's there's the, the stoic thing is that what you can control is your own thoughts words and actions and what you can't control is the things that are happening to you mm. which is the sort of adventure the things that are coming at you from the universe that you can't mm. predict and you didn't choose. But in fact, you can't choose either of those things. No, you can't. Um, no, and, <laughs> you, you don't choose anything. And it's the, in, it's the, it's the meeting of your character with the, that set of circumstances, which if yeah. it's sufficiently challenging, if it sufficiently sort of breaks apart, challenges your worldview, makes for the fiction I'm thinking about my own absolutely favorite novel, which is uh, Ursula Le Guin's novel, The Left Hand of Darkness. Do you know it? Right. I don't know it, no. Oh, I, I think it's just the perfect novel. Okay. And uh, I want you to read it and tell me what you think. I will. <laughs> um, I will. I'm just, I'm just writing it. I've got pen in my I'm writing it down. The Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah. I've got so many great tips from, from since I'm doing it. Every time, everybody I interview, I, I'm left with a great recommendation. <laughs> it's quite a short. <laughs> so, it's quite a short little novel. Also, um, I I both read it and listened to the audiobook, and I think it's the only. Okay. I think it's one of the few times when I finished reading the novel and I thought I can't. Uh, I I felt this deep sense of mourning, and I immediately started oh, listening wow. to it on audiobook <laughs> because I had to kind of go back and revisit it. There's also BBC Play of it, which is which oh, you right. obviously shouldn't on on radio play, which you shouldn't listen to until you've read the book clearly. But is also no, I'll definitely superb. get the book. Short um, ones are the best ones. It's and um, that has sort of everything. It's a it's science fiction as you can imagine, being Ursula Le Guin. And mm. it's, I think it is much better than any of her other works, frankly. I do enjoy okay. the other Le Guin books, but this is in a different league. So it has both this extraordinary premise, this milieu, which is, it takes mm. place in this distant planet called Gethin, um, mm. which is a planet just coming out of an ice age. It's very oh. cold there. In fact, Gethin means winter in their language. Mm. And it's a planet of hermaphrodites. They are estrus-dependent hermaphrodites Ooh. who spend most of the cycle of the monthly cycle in a state called um, summer, in which they are in in which they have no sexual feelings and no 
sexually distinguishing marks. And a few, I think it's three or four days of the month in Kemmer, which is their sexually fertile active period, the estrus. At at Kemmer, you begin to morph and obtain sexual characteristics, but you could become male or female. It's unpredictable from month to month. So this is the setting, um, and it's already a fantastic setting, and she has a... um, an essay, like a fake critical essay at the beginning of the book, in the introduction, mm. about this setting and, and um, why she chose it. But then you have the two characters, the main characters, Estrovan and Genli, and each of them is faces a challenge which is going to completely change their worldview. Genli, because he is wow. a visitor from another world. He's a visitor from an Earth-like planet. He's not from Earth, but we might as well think of him as human. He's very similar to us. And Estrovan, because at the very beginning of the novel, he loses his job as he was prime minister and is thrown into this complete chaos situation, which I won't do. I won't give you any Sounds great. Oh, definitely. That's on my list. So Thank they're, you. They're both thrown into this relationship with each other, which is very challenging for them because they are not naturally friends. And they are also both thrown into these incredibly challenging situations. And what's at stake is everything. <laughs> yeah, as in all the best stories. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so that, that, that's, that, that, yeah, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. So it's a great milieu, but, they, but she's also, the author's also got fantastic characters with, 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 who are making mistakes about the world and presumably who learn and it's, are it's, challenged by each yes, other. Yes, it's just beautiful. And it has a Thomas Hardy-esque feel to it, mm. i.e. everything tragically happens just too late. Oh. At one point, Estrin says, uh, why can I never set my heart on a possible thing? And that's like a kind of motto for the entire novel. It's really heartbreaking, this novel, but very wonderful. And I, you know, I think about it a lot and I'm always hoping that I can find a way of using it to help my own writing. But in fact, I just feel completely intimidated Um, (laughs) whenever I think about novels I I enjoy. Um, And I have to say, so I thought that your, your, you had a lot of suggestions that I really liked, practical suggestions in the appendix, but also throughout, because as you're analyzing, the book is, I think most of the book is needn't be only of interest to people who are writers, because you are just doing these be- uh, beautiful kind of old-fashioned literary critical analyses of what it is about specific works that captivates us and then yeah that's what that was what i was keen to do is because mm. it, it's sort of it's really it's kind of a book about storytelling but it's really because it's really a book about the brain as a storyteller and and so it's really a book about what what it is to be human and 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 the kind of the, the really wonderful thing i found when writing it was that you know, I've tried to explain quite complex ideas to a, the, the, the public before in the selfie and in the heretics and when I'm talking, for example, confabulation and the split brain experiments. It's quite hard stuff to explain. But what I found now with, the, with the, having the tool of literature to help me explain it is, 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 is that it, the, the, the actual story examples enable you to, to show what you mean in, in a way that I just couldn't do when without it. So, for example, 
with the confabulation, and I use this, this this extract from this great novel, The Idea of Perfection by Kate Grimfield, where, where, where you see that exactly what I'm talking about in action. You see this scene where this woman has this idea about who she is and how she's behaving in the world. It's completely at odds with the truth. And and so, so, so the wonderful thing about having permission to use fiction as my you know, my case studies was that was, was that I, I kind of felt that I was, I was able to suddenly explain these quite some of the, some quite complex ideas about neuroscience and psych, you know, psychology uh, in ways that were just really useful and much more useful than, than, than the, 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 the ways I've been trying to explain them previously, if that makes sense. So that was, that was quite, yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah. It's very tortuous. Though. You're sort of using the stories to illuminate things about neuroscience, but at the same time, you're using neuroscience to explain why we are so captivated by specific stories. Um, and that's right. And, and I think, I think that's the kind of core idea really is, is, is that, is that, the, the the self is a is a story and 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 but and then that sounds like a kind of a, a slightly cheesy Deepak Chopra TED talk kind of thing to say, but it's really true. And to understand and to understand why it's true, you just got to reverse it. And it's not that the the, the self mimics stories, not that the self mimics Hollywood. It's the other way around. It's that stories mimic the self. And what's happened is that over the over the centuries, storytellers by practice and instinct have uh, have worked out how a self works. So, 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 so they're, they're way ahead of, of scientists in, 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 in understanding some of these ideas. So, so, so you'll, you'll, get a, you'll get a brilliant description of confabulation in a Richard Yates novel from the 50s, decades before we knew about confabulation. You know, people hearing themselves and watching themselves behave in certain ways and not quite understanding why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so, 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 so story mimics self. And, and, and so, so it's a great way of, in, if you're interested in psychology, if you're interested in neuroscience, if you're interested in the sciences of the mind and human behavior, it's a really great way of understanding it is by going to story, by going to fiction and um, you know, TV and film. It's interesting how, um, you know, I, I, I taught the rise of the novel when back in the days when I was an academic and Oh, wow. It's interesting what kind of novel became hegemonic. Mm. So early in the period, we have two classic examples of of a plot-driven novel versus a character-driven novel. Um, mm. Henry Fielding's novel, Tom Jones, which yeah. um, Samuel Johnson describes as having one of the five most perfect plots ever devised. <laughs> I can't remember what the other four are. I know Ben Johnson's The Alchemist is one of the others. Okay. Um, but it's a perfectly beautifully plotted plotted little book. And the characters are actually portrayed in this deliberately stylized way. So, for example, mm. when he's describing Amelia, he says, she was like... She was like the cool zephyrs of the early morning. And he goes into this whole oh, classical beautiful. sort of um, uh, thing. But there's nothing specific about her. <laughs> you know, it's it's just, yeah, here's yeah, our heroine. Yeah. This is what heroines are like, <laughs> you know. My mistress, I yeah. everything like the sun. <laughs> so it's it's like yeah. a kind of reversal uh, of that. And it's it's... Uh, it's such a pleasure to read that because the plot is just extraordinarily beautifully devised. And we do have mm. no novels like that. You know, the, the whodunit novel, Ag Agatha Christie's novels are the closest. Yeah. Um, you know, when every little clue is foreshadowing something that is going to happen later and it's going to be important later and it's all, mm. you know, this puzzle. 
And then on the other hand, you have Clarissa, where Johnson also said, don't read it for the plot. If you read it for the plot, your patience will be so fretted, you will hang yourself. <laughs> you need to read it for the sentiment and regard the plot as merely a means of giving rise to the sentiment. And that oh, wow. novel is entirely character-centered. So it's a really, really deep um, examination of two characters, one of whom, who everybody loves, including me, is a rapist, <laughs> <laughs> talking about anti-heroes and um, yeah. um and the other is his teenage victim um, <laughs> you know and it's Jeez. an extraordinarily long and in-depth exploration of their both of their psychologies and almost nothing happens in that book um right. you know the only event is the rape which is in the middle of the book and is the one thing that is never described we just have a letter wow. from loveless who is the the rapist uh, anti-hero, which says, mm. it is over, Clarissa lives. That is the entirety of the description of the rape. Well, that's important, isn't it? Because, because I think what, what, what you said, that, and that's one of the ways that, 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 our, that, that our feelings around anti-heroes are manipulated, um, is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is that we only emotionally experience what we're shown so 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 if presumably if the rape was would have been described that would have changed your perhaps although i feel like it's even more sinister clarissa lives did he expect her to you know he was expecting her to die oh, during right. the rape God, i yeah, mean that's yeah, incredibly yeah. chilling but this kind of one might have thought at the beginning of that period fielding was much more popular and you might have thought that the tom jones style um very densely plotted, self-conscious, funny. Um, it's a very comic novel, um, would, would be the dominant form, but it wasn't. The Richardsonian thing, the focus on in-depth character analysis, the wow. realistic novel, that became the, the dominant thing. And I think it, it continues to be the dominant thing, even though there's a big interest in fantasy mm. at the moment in particular, but it's, it's realistic fantasy. It's not self-conscious and explorations of mm. literature. It's not postmodern. You know? yeah. It's we're not reading novels that were influenced by Foucault. We're reading mm. Harry Potter and we're watching Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah, yeah. It's interesting the history of the, the of the novel. There's a there's a there's a historian. I don't know if you've heard of called called Lynn Hunt, mm -hmm. who's yep. who, who who writes about yeah. So she 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 writes about this idea that um the the invention of the novel was part of the cultural milieu in which the idea of human rights comes about. So for the first time, um, you know, a moneyed gentleman could read could 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 put himself in a position of a of a servant girl who was being you know sexually abused mm, or whatever Pamela, yes. and um and, 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 yeah yes yeah, so exactly so so um so for the first time people were, were kind of empathize were kind of empathizing across tribal lines you know men were imagining themselves into positions of women and, and as i write in the inside the storytelling that the, the slave narrative was a big part of the campaign to end um slavery the, you know the narratives of uh, uh, of, of actual Af african-american um uh, uh, slaves and that was seems mm, a big part i think of, it predates of that revolution that a little bit. Um, mm. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, but it's always right. tempting when you're interested in a particular time in history to feel that everything mm. important started at that time in history. 
Um, mm. And we always used to joke about this um, when I was teaching that, you know, the medievalists would always say, well, the middle classes began in the medieval period and kind of <laughs> because, you know, some people were living in castles, but also there were the people who were mm. farmers and yeomen and things. Um, you know, everybody mm. feels that the important developments, the turning point was in their period of history that they're most interested so, um, in. So, so you're saying the slave narratives were too far in advance of the... of the. Yeah, I think the the, the um, human rights things are a little bit later than, the, about a century later than really the main development of the novel or the beginnings of the novel. Okay. Okay. But it depends on how you, how you define it. <laughs> um, I think the, the... Yeah, there are not... I think that it's it's always tempting to feel that everything began in your own time. I think though mm. uh, oh, there there are some technological things which we can place a kind of timer on. So, for example, mm. the idea of most novels being trash um, or mm. most books being trash—that's something you don't hear in the medieval period you can't get that you can't have that sense until at least the printing press and actually until the kind of late 17th century when you have further developments in the printing press and therefore people are just able to publish more when there are so mm. few works that are published and each each one has to be meticulously copied out by hand then you don't have this sense of bah, most books are trash which begins mm. to happen in the 18th century. Um, Lady Mary Wortley Montague says to Pope, I'm glad you're, you're right, it will furnish paper when I shite. That kind of attitude is, is, a, is an industrial age attitude. Right. But yeah, we're, I'm getting, we're getting very off track. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, oh, actually, sorry, I really want to, uh, this is not relevant to anything, but your book is full of lovely little <laughs> insights. And this was one of my favorite, you say, the audience's curiosity resembles the shape of a lowercase n, the letter n, peaks when peaking yeah. when we know something and fading away when we know everything. I loved that. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you. But I um, wanted to ask you what you thought about uh, Game of Thrones and whether you would like to analyze that a little bit in the in the context of what you know about storytelling. Well, that's an interesting one because I'm not a massive fan of Game of Thrones. I didn't even watch it, but somebody interviewed me about Game of Thrones, somebody from Wired magazine earlier in the week. And they told me about it, and they said, "What's your analysis of of why no one liked it?" So, so forgive me if I get this mm -hmm. wrong, but I'll tell you what I, I told him. So he he said to me that that that, that it turned into, um, is it Daenerys, the 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 the, the, yes. the, the dragon, the mother of dragons? Lady. Yes, uh, that, she, that she became this genocidal maniac and torched everybody. Is that is that essentially yes. right? Yes. And, 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 and her and, so, and so, so my Snow, her lover, killed her to sort of save humanity. Um, <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, my, my sense from what he was, what he was saying was 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 that, um, you know, what great storytelling does is it, it, it is it is it, uh, you know, very often, not always, but often, um, the the character kind of embodies this flaw, this mistaken idea about the world, and the, and the narrative shows them experimenting with this idea. Sometimes they go with it, sometimes they don't go with it, and they're slowly changing. In in, in a tragic plot, they 
kind of double down on that flaw, like in the Lita or in a, in a, in a, in a heroic kind of happy ending archetypal plot they they finally learn to change and um so 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 a great example of, of this would be um breaking bad with the, the entire story from 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 the first episode played with this idea of who is walter white is he you know is he a good guy is he a bad guy uh, why is he um becoming a drug dealer is he doing is it for his family or is he doing it for uh, you know uh, other re- more sinister reasons and and so that the whole story played with that idea and it danced around in the book i call this the dramatic question it's the essential question that all great drama asks who is this person because human storytelling has many of its roots in in gossip, which is which, and that's what gossip asks. And my sense from talking to this person from Wired, and I, don't, and I hope it's true, um, uh, w- w- was that was that Daenerys she hadn't been playing with that idea. It was it, the, the, it didn't feel like she'd been playing with that idea of who she really was in this way throughout the the, the, the mm, kind of no, arc of no. the story. That, that, that this that, 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 that this question had been kind of tacked on to the final season, and so and so that's I think could be good, and, and that's that sense that she hasn't earned this, and she we haven't seen this coming, and it comes out of nowhere. That's because that's not who her character is. That's not the that's that's not the. Uh, um, exploration her character has been making. It's not the interrogation about the world her character has been making. So for it to come out of nowhere, I think probably quite rightly, it smacks of, we've got to end this story somehow, so let's just do this. Mm, mm. There have been these viral things on Twitter, a video of Kit Harrington at the table reading um, when they first were given their their scripts. Um, And his (laughs) response to the fact that he kills her was... I right. think more enjoyable than anything that's actually on Game of Thrones itself. <laughs> but I saw a cut-up thing that was on YouTube of, of lots of people, lots of actors from Game of Thrones expressing extreme, like, really obvious. <laughs> I've been asked by journalists, "What did what's going on last season?" And they're kind of going like, like grimacing, kind of thing. Like it, like it felt like the cast weren't that happy with with, with kind of how how it mm. ended. It's, I mean. I mean, yeah. you get that you get this often with long form with it was like with like I was a huge fan of Twin Peaks back in the late 80s early 90s and 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 of course that only took two seasons to fall to pieces and lost was the same thing where you got this great beginning um but but because it's not because the writers themselves don't really know where they're going or what they're doing and because the characters aren't tightly defined they've just got this great idea for a, a setting for a story and they've got these interesting ideas for characters and they they set them going and that's fine for a while but 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 if you're trying to end a story like that that's we're going to run into difficulties because the ending yeah. is almost defined and by often, the beginning and way. often with series you don't know how long they're going for so mm-hmm. so you know you end up you're just kind of treading water because you don't know if it's what, at what point it's going to end. And so um, later seasons get worse and worse and worse. Although That's I recently right. yes, watched, yes, yes, yes. yeah, <laughs> they just get more, you know, more and more ridiculous and far-fetched because mm-hmm. they're trying to keep a plot going artificially, but there's no overarching, there's no larger arc there. There's no sense of yeah. a single story yeah. because you can't, Tell a story if you have no idea at what point they will make you end it. Yeah, and it's hard to tell a tell a really satisfying story unless you unless you know specifically what um, what idea that the characters are kind of in, interrogating. And that's why Walter White is such a great character. That's why Tony Soprano with his you know, fam, you know the, the, the the blood family versus the the, the, the mob family. He felt there was a very specific idea there that around which his kind of character was you know kind of moving i I think you're right i think that's the that's a real problem with long form 
it, can, it works with soap opera because soap opera never ends. Mm. And, and so, 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 so what you're seeing with, with, with episodic drama like soap operas, like, we've, like in the UK, we've got the, this is the longest running soap opera in the world. It's The Archers. Yes. I think it's begun for nearly 20,000 episodes oh, of it. I used and, to and, be and it's, addicted, and it's, completely addicted to The Archers <laughs> for years. <laughs> well, many people are still. And, and so, so, so what, what, you're, what, you're, what you see in episodic, it's, it's, so... So, so, so because story mimics the conscious experience, just like the conscious experience, there's two levels to story. There's, there's the external level of the drama. There's the world of action. And there's the internal unconscious level of story, which is the subconscious reaction to all that action and how characters are re- responding and changing and learning. And, 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 it's, and those two, just like in life, in, it, those two levels are always interacting. And what you see in, in story is that on that top level, it, the, the, the top level in classic storytelling um, is centered around a story event, like one, usually one story event. Like in King Lear, the story event comes at the beginning of the play and he has this love test and it all goes terribly wrong. And the rest of the play tells of the consequences of this love test. Um, in, um, uh, in, on, in Julius Caesar, uh, the story event comes in the middle of the story and that's the assassination of Caesar. And, and then the first half is the build-up and, and, and the second half is the, is the terrible ramifications of, of, the, of, the, of the assassination. And so, and so, so, you, so, so in a film or a novel, you get this kind of like five-act arc, uh, which, is, which is, for me, the equivalent of the perfect three-and-a-half-minute pop song. It's this perfect little form of storytelling where something happens at the beginning, it, it, a story event occurs, and then we're, we're told this very neat um, kind of sequence of causes and effects around this story event with a beginning and a middle and an end. Now that works in, in episodic TV because what all you do is you just put a new story event at, at the end of every episode. Right. Uh, and that, and, and so in sitcom, the story event becomes at the beginning of the episode and then the rest of the half an hour is all the characters being offered the opportunity to change and they don't change. They're just the same characters and that's hilarious because they're Basil Fawlty mm-hmm. or they're whoever just behaving as they always behave and then everything comes together at the end. And then the beginning is another story event and it just carries on, carries on, carries on. In soap opera, there's often a story event at the be- at the end of an episode because that's what keeps that's the cliffhanger and that keeps you watching to the next one. But when you're trying to end a long form um, show like Game of Thrones, you're stuck because you're you're not doing the one. You're not doing a novel or a film or a play which has this neat um, s- sequence of events around one specific story event. And you're not doing sitcom or soap where, where which just has a different a new story event every episode around which the characters. Um, uh, 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 kind of responding and, 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 and sort of being thrown into disorder again and then everything becoming okay again. You're trying to do a kind of a, a difficult mixture of them both. So, and I, and I think that's why people have such difficulty ending long-form TV. It worked really well in Breaking Bad because you, you, it was a very, he was a very tightly defined character and, 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 and we were left with the idea that he was doing it not for his family because he was he turned into a psycho and he died. Fine. Um but Game of Thrones being this kind of multi-character thing, um, I think they struggled by, the, by all accounts. I've recently been watching Babylon 5, and I'll try not to go on about it too much because <laughs> I absolutely and completely adored it. Um, <laughs> and not that many people are into it. In the, uh, you know, It's a fraction of the number of people who are into Star, Star Trek. So every yeah. time I mention it, it's like this kind of secret handshake these people come out of the woodwork and they're like, right. we are the chosen people who really appreciate, <laughs> truly appreciate Babylon 5. This 90s. I'm like that with Big Brother. 90s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this kind of 90s sci-fi set in a space station. And um, mm. they had two major problems. One was that 
the their main character uh, the actor had had schizophrenia um and was having psychotic breaks on on set um and they had to mm. replace him so that was mm. the first big challenge and then at the beginning of the fourth season the network suddenly told them they were pulling the show and so oh. in about two episodes they quickly tied together all the ends of this massive story that they had oh, built no. up uh-huh. and then the network decided to continue the show after all so they had like finished every part of the story and they had oh, sent God. the villains packing you know and the virtuous people were completely victorious and stuff and they had to like find some <laughs> find uh, a, a new story for the for the for kind of Another twelve episodes of the fourth season and, and eighteen <laughs> episodes of the fifth season, <laughs> having unexpectedly gotten extra sort of dose of funding, and I have to say, both of those things they handled just beautifully. And the right. end of the fourth season and the whole fifth season is the best part of Babylon Five. I, I seem to remember enjoying the ending of Six, six Feet Under. Oh, um, Six Feet uh, Under is I, I wonderful. I can't remember how it ended, but 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 Everyone at, at, at the very at the very <laughs> beginning of the season, you, 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 we, we were told that is it Nate had mm-hmm. had this yes. brain yes. problem yes. and he was going to die, and yes. of course, so. So, 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 lots of his character arc is around him wrestling with this idea, and then, of course, and doesn't he die? Actually, the, it isn't at the very end, is it? He dies quite uh, relatively early, and then yes. we, 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 we have these episodes dealing with the aftermath of his death. So, so, so that felt like that's great storytelling, and of course, Alan Ball also wrote American Beauty, which is another favorite of mine. He's an extraordinarily talented um, um, storyteller, Alan Ball. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I, these multicast ones end up being difficult because because you tie you've got so many loose ends to tie up it becomes almost impossible. I think it's quite important to kill one of your main characters at some point mm. before the end of the show so that the threat of death is taken seriously. And mm. this was my problem with Star Trek Discovery or one of many problems with it. I still love it, but it's a deeply flawed, you know, <laughs> it's my <laughs> deeply flawed child who I can't help being fond of anyway. Um, but, you know, it won uh, in the last season, about halfway through, um, there is a, an episode in which uh, Saru, who is, is one of the linchpin characters, it seems that he is going to die. And there's a really tearful deathbed scene. There's a farewell to him. The show is a real, real tearjerker. It's a very emotionally manipulative, as the critics say. Um, yeah. Uh, but then they they turn all around at the last minute and Saru survives. And I was so disappointed by that. And I thought, now, you know, whenever any of your characters are threatened with death, I'm not going to take you seriously. Yeah. If you're gonna, <laughs> and Babylon 5 is good with that. When they are going to, when they kill someone, they kill them. <laughs> They're gone. And <laughs> so you know that that is always a risk. No matter how yeah, much, yeah, how beloved yeah. your character and how many episodes he's already been on and how much of a kind of show runner and big name and whatever else he might be, you need to know that he is vulnerable within the universe of the, of the show. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, yeah, I think you, you get this unconscious feeling of am I in good hands that other storytellers are they serious yeah, about no, right. what they're doing? Are they serious yeah. about it or not? Yeah. Are they prepared to be sadistic if need be? Yes, exactly. Yeah, what's the real threat here? Yeah, absolutely right. 
Do you have any thoughts about why um, fantasy is so popular at the moment? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I saw something pop up recently, uh, which was looking at, which was arguing that um, during times of perceived struggle, we tend to enjoy more stories that revolve around kind of fantasy and escapism. I don't know whether that's true or not, um, but, 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 but no, but, 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 I mean, it, it, it would seem to make a kind of surface sense, but it, but it, just, it feels a bit too neat mm, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to be completely real to me. It's one of those ones that just, you, you can imagine is rising with problems. One of those kind of ideas that is a bit, a bit too neat to be true, but, but, but no, I, I mean, I, 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 beyond, I mean, I'm not sure, um, you know, so Game of Thrones has been huge, but but is that just because it, it, they're based on some brilliant novels and and an HBO who spent a ton of money on it, and it's just a great piece of storytelling? I mean, I I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking Game of Thrones and Harry Potter and Star Trek, and you know, there there seem to be so many. And Lord but, of the Rings. Yeah, but, I mean, Harry much. Potter is just Harry Potter is Star Wars. It's the same plot, almost identical as Star right. Wars. Yes, was, yes. So it's, it's, I don't think those stories. I, I don't. I, I just think that, that we just keep we, we just keep retelling them because they're just they're just amazing. They're just amazing stories. <laughs> amazing stories. Mm, yeah, you say that um, at one point you talk about to move beyond cliche requires specificity. Yeah. What do you see as some of the major dangers that are that are tempting to the would be the aspiring writer and how do we how can we try to avoid them well i, well, I say for me it's reading all the books on how to tell stories <laughs> that just tell you how to how to give you a recipe mm. first this thing happens and then this thing happens and then this thing happens and then this thing happens that's such a temptation because it feels like it's the it's the golden key if i just do this it's like a, I've made a cake and the cake is going to be as good as Game of Thrones. And of course, that's not true. What what marks out great storytelling are great characters and, and is psychological truth. And that's true of Game of Thrones and it's true of Shakespeare. It's true of you know characters like King Lear and Hamlet. I mean, th- 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 these are really interesting, complex um, characters. So so, 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 so so the 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 the, the, the thing that will rescue you from cliche is. Um, really going back to character who is this person what's their specific mistake they're making about the world and one of the one of the things when i'm sort of teaching is you know through this process which is i call it the, the sacred floor approach with the with, with the people who come on the course is that it does initially it feels very reductive so can we really sum teresa somebody with the, some something i'm not teresa may up with that one line she always feels like she's only an adult in any room she mm. um, walks into and of course the answer is no not just that line but then but then what, what you do is you start off with that very specific and precise idea and you start thinking okay so so what kind of a life um might this person have um um walked themselves into built for themselves and of course for Theresa it could easily be politician it could easily be um um prime minister um and so so, so it's from that very um that, that 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 very kind of tight definition of character you kind of build this life and, and, and a, a set of values for, for for that person like in a recent course um, i said you know what's the what's this what's the kind of flaw this the, the sacred flaw for this character and the, and the person said oh well they like to they're, they're very controlling so i thought well that's 
you know, that's a start, but it's, it's not specific enough. How do they control people? How do they control the world? And then the answer came, they control it by telling tall stories. They're a lie. They tell these, they tell these fanciful stories, and that's how they control people. And then from that, it, the room just became this kind of cauldron of ideas. Well, I immediately thought of the film Shattered Glass, which is about that journalist that, that, that became very famous for but it ended up that they were lying, making up all these stories, and the kind of world fell to bits. And the, and the film was the, the, the true story of um, of this person. Another person mentioned it could be like a Joseph Goebbels propaganda type person. That's actually that kind of person could have uh, 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 gone to be like Steve Bannon propagandist type. Mm. Um, another person said, well, it could be this 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 mother who, who who controls their children by lying to them about all this stuff, and it and it builds this kind of house of cards. So you see, from these very specific ideas, you you, you get really interesting characters and, and and the more you think from that perspective of, of that floor and what kind of what life have they built for themselves and what their values and what do they want and what do they need but don't realize they need that's how you end up with these very specific and interesting and unusual characters that feel real mm, what because do they need because, but don't realize they need i think that's key yeah and that's the unconscious that's the unconscious need which is kind of powering that second unconscious level of the of the story you know what does what does Walter White in Breaking Bad need he needs to feel a sense of status he needs to feel important and valued by the people around him and he never and the only way he got that was through being a, or, or he needed to fix the, the 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 damage that was done to him when he had his um th- there was an idea in the story that he that he, that he could have won this um Big great science is the Pulitzer or the some great science prize, um, uh, but it was kind of robbed from him, and and that was that burning wound that that that, that drove him. That was the flaw. That was the that was the damage he needed to fix, but he didn't. He never fixed it, mm. so he ended up just becoming this evil man. So so, so, so yeah. So, so so from these very simple ideas of character, you, you build very complex selves, very complex stories, and that's where the originality comes. That's where the unexpectedness comes because in, then instead of Going back to the formula, oh, now we need a meeting in a cave. Now we need a, uh, you know, refusal of the call or whatever it is. The characters are deciding what happens next because because their decisions are a reflection of who they are. The decisions are a reflection of their flaw, the reflection of their unconscious wants and needs, and 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 so on. And and so that's that's that kind of missing piece, I think, from that 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 we need to kind of rediscover in our storytelling. Mm, and it needs to be implicit to the story itself. Um, you know, if you, yeah. you can't, you can't, you need people to be able to come to this, to, to give this kind of summary that you've just given from reading your story, rather than from anything yeah. you've explicitly told them in the course of the story <laughs> <Yes>. or <laughs> another point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to end on, unless you have anything else that you are burning to say. No, no, it's been a fascinating chat as always, and I've got some great book recommendations. I'm going to order the Left Hand of Darkness. Yes, please. In, in about thirty seconds, yeah. so I'm, I'm looking forward to. As soon as <laughs> you go offline now, I want you to go read that novel. It will happen. I promise. And I'm going to. Well, I mean, I'll order it. I can't promise I'll read it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, stop everything you're doing, <laughs> um, and I am going to read your novel. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Erin. I really like it. Yeah, great. Um, I don't know why I didn't why I didn't before, but now I certainly am going to. And I will be reviewing Will's book for Ario magazine. And I'm also oh, going cool. to put you. all the references to Will's work into the courses. And I'll also list the names of any works that we've mentioned in the course of this conversation in the show notes. And uh, 
Thank you so much, Will. It's been a great pleasure. No, thank you. And I should, probably, I should probably mention that it's being published in America in spring, April next year. I'm afraid it's not out for a while in the States. Ah, okay. Those Americans are but always... But it's orderable. They're always very slow. It's orderable from Amazon. Yes, yeah, pre-order yeah. it. Pre-orders <laughs> are the most sincere form of love. <laughs> yes. Or you can just get it shipped from the UK, but that's going to cost a bit. And I'm sure I will be talking to Will again when he writes his next book. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I think you're going to like the next one. I'm not going to give anything away, but Ooh. yeah, it's going to be a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Will. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.